The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, our show today really is about international peace, and we have a wonderful guest with us coming all the way from the Midwest. I want to tell you a little bit about David Courtright, who is director of of Policy Studies with the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame in beautiful Notre Dame, Indiana. And this man has a wonderful background. He is, um, besides being this Director of Policy Studies, he is the Chair of the Board of the Fourth Freedom Forum. He's author of 17 books, most recently Ending Obama's War, which came out in 2011, and Towards Nuclear Zero, which is 2010, and he's also the editor of Peace Policy, Kroc's online journal, and you can learn more about what he says about peace at his blog at David Courtright, that's David, and then C-O-R-T-R-I-G-H-T dot net. And other recent works by David include the second edition of Gandhi and Beyond, Nonviolence for a Political Age, and this was updated in 2010, his second edition, and Peace, a History of Movements and Ideas, and Uniting Against Terror, Cooperative Non-Military Responses to the Global Terrorist Threat, and this was in 2007, that he co-edited with Georgia A. Lopez, who he worked with many times before. David has written widely about Nonviolent social change, nuclear disarmament, and the use of multilateral sanctions and incentives as tools of international peacemaking. And you know, Lloyd, he has provided research services to foreign ministries of Canada, Denmark, Germany, Japan, the Netherlands, Sweden, and Switzerland. And he's served as a consultant to the United Nations, the Carnegie Commission on Preventing Deadly Conflict, and much, much more. I could tell you a lot more, but you can see more about him and his picture and his bio and his link to his website at our website at conflicthealing.com. Thank you so much, David, for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Mari. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I'll tell you, when when I saw the book that you had written about Gandhi, Gandhi is my hero. You know, I, he's a, an attorney-turned-mediator, a healer of conflict, which is really my my goal my my desire after 26 years that's 
that's my dream to be like Gandhi and to follow in his footsteps in many ways. And uh, it's so I, true. You know, he was not very successful as a courtroom advocate when he first tried to practice the law. Right. But he found that he had this great skill at uh, negotiation, at yeah. uh, mediation, yep. and his ability to work with uh, various aggrieved parties to write up their demands and petition to the authorities. And from there, he led the whole movement for freedom in India. Yeah. He was very gentle yet powerful, and that's that's what I think about when I think about Gandhi, being very gentle but yet very powerful and assertive but, but kind. And, and what, what wonderful traits to have. But l- let me ask you, David, how is it that you became interested in nonviolence? Well, for me, it's, uh, I think, a rather unusual and maybe ironic journey. I really had no interest in peace issues when I graduated from university way back. Uh, but it was 1968, and it was the time of the maximum military conscription, the draft calls in the U.S., and, and I got drafted for mm-hmm. the Vietnam War. And I uh, had not thought about war and peace, didn't want to go in, but there I was and was forced to focus. And the more I thought about, the more I read about what was going on in Vietnam, about the Army, talked to the vets who were coming back, uh, I began to have grave doubts. And uh, went through what a colleague later told me was a crisis of conscience. I just couldn't continue on with what I was being asked to do in military service to be part of a war that I increasingly saw as unjust and immoral. Uh, so I began to actually speak out for an end to the war, for peace in Vietnam, as an active duty soldier. Mm. You know, Rather shocking to hear from some folks, I think, but uh, but that was part of what happened during the Vietnam Day. There was a very substantial anti-war movement among active duty soldiers and veterans. Yes, of course, I the have... most famous person of that uh, movement is today uh, Senator John Kerry, presidential yes. candidate. And, but that was the movement, and and that's what turned me to thinking more about peace and trying to figure out how these kinds of disastrous wars could be avoided, how we could especially avoid nuclear war. And it set me on a path of exploration and speaking out for an end to war, and I've really not looked back ever since. Right. And, you know, I was part of that that uh, generation as well, since I, I remember I had friends that went to Vietnam, and I had friends that came back, and I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison as an undergrad. So that was, at that time, the Berkeley of the Midwest. Yes, indeed. And I remember walking to the Capitol with my with my candle, you know, and singing, all we are saying is give peace a chance. So mm-hmm. I was I was part of that generation as well, so I can I can really relate. And when I did get into, when I became a lawyer and I was litigating, it felt very uncomfortable to me. And I kept thinking, where, you know, this, this, young person that grew up in, in a child of the 60s, you know, where where is that person? And I guess that's what, you know, wanted me to be like Gandhi, to also be a healer of conflict rather than one who is a hawk. So right. I, can, I can really relate to what, what you're saying since I'm from that generation as well. Now, nonviolence, people will say to me, well, you know, nonviolence, yeah, we, we saw the movie Gandhi or we read books about Gandhi and that's just unique situation. You know, it's it's nice in theory. It doesn't work. Look at all the people that were killed, you know, because of the nonviolence. Um, is, is it practical? And how can it happen? 
Well, that's the question that I've asked myself, and um, the students that I teach very much ask that first days in class. So uh, we have to be practical about it and pragmatic, I think. And and as I've really explored this, I've come to see that uh, nonviolence is more than just a, a principle, a, a goal. It It is a practical political method for achieving justice. And we've seen this actually right now with the, the Arab Spring that's underway uh, in Egypt and Tunisia. The movements were able to be successful. They were completely nonviolent. Uh, but in Libya, uh, the rebels took up arms, and now they're involved in this very long, drawn-out, and very costly and bloody uh, armed conflict with the Gaddafi regime. Um, and we've seen in many struggles that the nonviolent method works and that there are particular strategies that are very effective. Uh, Gandhi was really the one who developed these strategies, and Martin Luther King Jr. applied them in the United States. And now all over the world, uh, when people want to rebel, when they want to strive for justice to overthrow corrupt dictators, the method that people are using almost everywhere is nonviolence, strategic, organized nonviolence, using it as a political tool to embarrass, to undermine the authority of corrupt leaderships. Yes. Uh, so it's proven itself to be highly effective, and there's a whole range of tactics and strategies that are part of it, and, and that's what I teach in my course, and, and it's now being taught in you know, really dozens of universities and many training centers, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Those students in Egypt who helped to bring down the Mubarak uh, dictatorship, they took classes uh, from the students in Serbia mm. who had brought down the dictator there in the year 2000, and uh, so there's, there's a method now, and there's a, a strategy that's being applied increasingly around the world. You know, when you talk about Cairo, I understand that you recently traveled to Cairo, and then you had a chance to meet and interview those who, who really were involved in this unarmed revolution there. So what did you learn from them, you know, and what was your impressions of them individually when you talked to them? Well, mostly, Mari, I was just so overwhelmed uh, to be there and to talk to a 25-year-old young woman who was the revolutionary, a gentle, uh, caring young woman uh, who told the stories of what it was like to be there in the middle of Tahrir Square and to be attacked by the police. And, and this was a, a, a real struggle, a, a real social conflict. Um, they were being attacked and killed by the police, and yet they remained nonviolent. And they knew that they had to remain nonviolent uh, to, with the nonviolent method because their goal was to win over the hearts and minds of the entire Egyptian population. Uh, this movement there in Egypt was started by just a few hundred students, young people. Hmm. Uh, but they knew they had to bring in the whole population, and they couldn't do that if they retaliated in kind to what they were being faced with by the police and by the thugs. They had to be disciplined and nonviolent, and they stayed with that. And, yes, they suffered. You know, dozens were killed and injured. But they, by their witness and by their moral courage, uh, inspired their countrymen and and helped to arouse the whole country to stand up against Mubarak. So that was tremendously powerful and inspiring, and, and especially to see how they understood the essential truth that Gandhi always emphasized right from the very, very beginning of his movement when he said to the people in India, we must be courageous. We must adhere to strict Nonviolent discipline. Yes, we likely will be beaten by the police. Some of us may have to suffer. Uh, some may die even. But our victory 
depends on our willingness to remain disciplined. And through that experience, we'll be able to win over the sympathy and support of our uh, colleagues and the power of the establishment, which looks so great when they have all the police and all of their armed forces arrayed against us. It may look great, but it steadily erodes because uh, their moral authority, their political legitimacy declines to the point where people no longer follow orders. Right. So what kind of leadership did they have over there in Cairo, these young people? Well, it was extraordinary. They said, well, this was a leadership uh, that was essentially everywhere. There was no single person. It was a kind of a collective mind. They talked about it. Hmm. They said it was leaderless, but really it was uh, everyone was a leader. And people told us of extraordinary things. One young man said, you know, I wasn't even that interested in the movement when it first started, but I was at Friday prayers, and we heard about how the police were beating our fellow students, and the imam wasn't saying much about it, so I just went up and grabbed the microphone and talked <laughs> in the mosque and told people there that we should go out and join the, the young people at Tahrir Square. And so that young man was a, was a leader. Uh, a young woman that I talked to who had never been in any kind of protest before, but she came out and for women especially to be out alone in the streets and oh, yeah. the square with mostly men was, you know, that's not really part of their culture. But she went out there and she uh, was actually well treated by the men and, and she became a leader. She, when some of them were unwilling to continue the marches, she said, no, come forward, let's keep going. You know, it's, so uh, it, was, it was amazing to hear these stories and to, to see how uh, there was a leadership in the sense of a, a truly collective leadership among yeah. all of the people. Yeah. I remember back in Madison when I was trying to go to exams and people were protesting and they were, you know, they were nonviolent protesters yeah, on the campuses. You remember those years. Certainly. And yeah. I remember Kent State and, and when these kids were just protesting and, and they were killed. And, and I remember getting hit with tear gas and all I was doing was literally on my way to a Portuguese exam <laughs> and I got hit with tear gas and, um, and, and it, you know, people were protesting all around me, but it was, it was all nonviolent. It was just people who were just singing and, but we got hit with tear gas. So I, you know, obviously I wasn't killed and I wasn't experiencing what they experienced at Kent State, but that is the kind of stuff that is, um, that that sticks in your mind forever when you go through something like that, and and I and I remember that. But I just wonder, okay, so what is the difference then with these people who react in a nonviolent way versus those who, like you said, in Syria and other places where they act in a very violent way? What is the difference? How? Why? Why does that happen differently? And they're both, you know, they're all like you know, Middle Eastern Middle Eastern con countries. Yeah. Well, I think the decision to pick up arms is a fateful one. And, you know, sitting here in North America, we can't be in a position to judge what they may face in Libya or some of these countries when they're being attacked by the brutal dictators. So it's, it may be understandable, uh, but it's fundamentally a mistake because the dictators, the, the armies, the repressive forces, what they know and what they understand is the use of force. They are very well prepared to deal with armed attack. Uh, so if we pick up arms against them, then we're fighting on their turf, uh, right. and we, we have no chance of succeeding. Um, instead, if the decision is made to stay nonviolent, to face the repression but not retaliate in kind, 
Uh, they will use their repressive instruments, but the effect effectiveness of those repressive tools will be diminished. Uh, they try to remove you from the streets, but if you're not willing to move, then they've failed. And this is what happened in Egypt. This is really what happened in Eastern Europe in 89 when the, when the communist system fell and Soviet system fell in Eastern Europe. Uh, people were unwilling to be cowed and frightened and, and intimidated by the security forces. And when that happens, uh, the authority of the established system erodes. And in the case of the communist system, it collapsed altogether, also in Egypt in, in earlier this year. But uh, wherever it may be, it's always the case that the authority of those establishments declines. And mm -hmm. ultimately, political power is about the ability of those in office to get compliance from the rest of the society. People normally go along with the power system. Right. But when people start to say no, when they refuse to cooperate, they express a powerful form of resistance that can ultimately bring down those uh, corrupt and uh, repressive systems. Right. And then if they use violence, it's like that old saying, an eye for an eye and everybody goes blind. Yeah. <laughs> and nothing really changes. Things don't really there's happen. A, there's a lot of scholarly literature now on these specific dynamics. And, and one of the key things that brings down corrupt power or that brings about a transition is when there are loyalty shifts within the governing forces. Uh, especially in the security forces and in the police and the military. And yes. those loyalty shifts occur much more often in a nonviolent struggle than in a violent struggle. Right, right. And it makes sense, right? If you're in the police or the army and somebody's shooting at you, well, you're going to shoot back. That's what you're trained for, and that's instinctive. Right. But if you're out there shooting at people who are unarmed, yeah, if you're you, clubbing people who are unarmed... It's, you feel guilty. You feel guilty. It's something clicks, and, and that gets multiplied enough times, and the authority of that structure begins to collapse. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the kind of training that's required for nonviolent social change. Yeah, well, the first and most important, of course, is this matter of discipline. Um, nonviolent commitment in the sense of really uh, preparing for uh, the possibility of repression. When Dr. King and, and Gandhi were leading their movements, they always talked about a, a process of so-called purification. This was Gandhi's term. And what he meant by that was, you know, not some kind of, you know, ritual, but rather a spiritual exercise where we cleanse our soul and our hearts of ulterior motives, of feelings of hate, where we recognize that that person on the other side, while they may be brutal and unjust in how they act, they are human beings like we all are, and we have to somehow... Uh, try to appeal to the goodness that is in the heart of everyone. You know, that attitude and that spiritual discipline is is the most important thing. Uh, and then uh, often I have to be very careful, uh, very careful attention has to be paid to the particular tactics. So if there's a boycott that's going on, uh, or if there's uh, a strike and a mass action, uh, people have to be willing to uh, work together and so there's various protocols that may be established for how to organize the uh, boycotts, how to manage the demonstrations. Um, during the time of the uh, U.S. Civil Rights Movement in the South, uh, they had the lunch counter sit-ins. You remember that in yes, 1960 uh -huh. and 61. Uh, those were carefully rehearsed. And uh, the students went through weeks of training before they went down to the Woolworths. 
And they even had uh, role-playing where they had other students come in and pretend that they were like the white segregationist uh, crowd. And they would come in and shake them up while they're sitting in their lunch counters and, mm. you know, call them names and throw things at them so that the students would be prepared for what they were likely to face when they went out there in the real world. Uh, mm. and, and all of that is uh, a necessary part of training and preparation. Uh, it's really mostly in the, in the sense of the, the spiritual discipline, I think, and the, the, cur- the mustering of the courage, yes. uh, overcoming fear right. uh, that is so necessary to achieve success. Right. So if you have a higher consciousness about things, and you, know, you talked about spirituality, you talk about King. Yes, he was a spiritual leader, and, and Gandhi was a spiritual leader. And, you know, others and, uh, that, that also have been nonviolent have been spiritual leaders, even Jesus. I mean, he was another spiritual leader that was a non, believed in nonviolence. So, so what do we do about that when you have, you know, for example, the terrorists who use spirituality for their purpose right. and, and, That's a good question. and corrupt yeah. that spirituality? Like, I, I consider myself a spiritual person, and I... And and I don't have to have the same religion as anybody else to still be spiritual and still have that that oneness feeling that like you're talking about that you know you uh, halfway across the country have the the same needs and, and desires that I do about family and and having needs for food and and love and all these important things that are very we're, we're both human beings um, but what about those people that that are using their spirituality for, for, you know, the purpose of destroying others. Right. Well, I think we have to differentiate between true spirituality and and religions that are sometimes manipulated and used for ulterior purposes. And we know that religion can be used that way. I mean, these terrorists are distorting and uh, warping the meaning uh, of uh, Islam for these political purposes. And we've seen that in the past, you know, and even today, perhaps some, some Christians do the same. Uh, right. So uh, all religions have this potential where they can be uh, a source of great devotion to fellow human beings for love and for social construction and social justice. Or they can be used as a justification for the most heinous forms of violence. Right. Uh, so we, we have to break out of that mold and recognize when... Uh, these charlatans are misusing religion and sacred spiritual texts for purposes of political manipulation. You know, Al-Qaeda and these groups, they have nothing to do with genuine Islam. And almost all the respected imams and teachers of Islam across the entire world have condemned Al-Qaeda and said explicitly that uh, this is uh, completely contrary to the meaning of the word of the Prophet and of the scriptures of Islam. Right, uh, and so there, there's a core to all great religions, which is based on love for our fellow human beings, care for those who are in need, uh, a spiritual discipline uh, to try to overcome sin and temptation in our personal lives. Those are the great values of religion. They are fundamentally spiritual values, and and we need to focus on that, and but also never be shy about uh, criticizing and identifying those who manipulate religion and calling them to uh, a higher standard and and making sure that their manipulations are exposed because people may be vulnerable to that. We see that in 
Christian communities as we do in Islamic communities. So we have to be vigilant against this manipulation and distortion of religion. You know, here on the campus, they have this program that um, Palestinian students and Israeli students or Jewish students go to Israel together, and they call it the Olive Branch. And yeah, and they're trying to help these kids to see that they're all human beings, you know, and they go to Israel together and they see these things and they become friends and they go together. It's, it's really a wonderful program that they've done uh, because there's a lot of animosity on this campus between the uh, radical uh, Islam kids and the radical pro-Israel kids. And, and it's been very, it's been pretty scary at times for kids. It has right. been. And so they, they started this on the campus here. And, um, you know, that if they could understand that the true tenets of, of Judaism and Islam all come from the same thing, you know, that core that you're talking about, I think if people really could get to that higher level of spirituality, that, that knowing that there's this, this oneness and we get to, um, choose how we to express that oneness in any way we want to, whatever religion you feel like taking. Um, but they have to understand that they really have this oneness first. And I think that's been such a problem in the Middle East is that they just um, think that they're right and everybody else is wrong. And, and what do you do about that? Yeah. And, and when religion gets mixed up with these then it becomes more difficult to solve because religion religion has an appeal to sort of absolute truth, at least we think it does. And uh, but actually, these disputes in, for example, between Israel and the Palestinian people, it's not about religion. It's about specific political, social issues on the ground. You yes. Know, who gets to control the land? Uh, where should the boundaries be drawn? Uh, how can the security of Israel be protected alongside that of Palestine? You know, these are the real issues. Those are tough political, social issues. There's no easy solutions, but let's focus on those. But if they could get along, but if they be confused about this being a religious issue, right? However, the fact that they have hatred toward each other and they don't understand each other, they can't create solutions where they can live together. (laughs) So you know, it is. I, from my perspective, it is intertwined because if they really cared about each other and liked each other, they could find ways to live with each other and, and resolve some of those issues that are boundary issues or issues of, you know, living in the same country together. So, so yeah, yeah. they're political issues, but I think they, if they, if they liked each other, if they could find a way to really care about each other and be supportive of each other and be collaborative, then they could find solutions. So yeah, it it's kind like of like projects like you're mentioning from the school there is, uh, are exactly what's needed so that we can, build relationships yes. and can become the foundation for solving problems. Right. I think that that's the end. What you would, would you believe we are just about out of time? This is unbelievable, but I want to thank you so much. And we will um, make sure that everybody goes to your blog. Why don't you just give your blog um, URL address again? Yeah, it's David Courtright. That's C-O-R-T-R-I-G-H-T dot net. Well, you're terrific, and we'll have you back again. And please keep in touch and keep doing all the wonderful work that you're doing, David. We really appreciate it, and thank God for you. All right? Thank you. You too, Mary. Thank you. All right. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. 
Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at conflicthealing.com. There you can see our past guests, listen to archived interviews, download podcasts, and find out more about how you can heal conflict in your own life and community. And write us an email. Thanks so much. Join us again. Bye. It's about trust. in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.